Nicholas Molsky. Welcome to the McIver Newsmakers podcast. We're joined today by Justice Rebecca Bradley. And your honor, thank you very much for being with us. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Yeah, so big changes on, on the court right now. Um, you came on board in 2015. Um, so you've always known a conservative um, majority. Uh, obviously, uh, just, um, you know, for context, you know, for this conversation, uh, the fourth liberal judge was sworn in on um, Tuesday, uh, August 1st. So uh, what were your expectations coming into this month? Well, Bill, I knew that there would be changes with a shift in the majority. I was aware that the new majority was wanting to make changes to what are called our internal operating procedures. Um, I also knew that they were planning to fire Randy Koshnick. That's come out now. What I never anticipated was that day one, even before uh, Janet Protasiewicz was ceremonially sworn in, that they would unilaterally fire Randy Koshnick, hire Audrey Skorowski without consulting with three of their other colleagues and make sweeping changes to our internal operating procedures and our Supreme Court rules, again, without consulting any of us without asking for our input. I also didn't anticipate that they were going to try to abandon all of our court customs and procedures and just announce that they were going to have a meeting. And then when we expressed that, well, we don't meet in August, which is very customary for many state Supreme Courts around the country, as well as the United States Supreme Court, that the courts do not meet in July and August, in fact, SCOTUS does not meet in September either. Um, we conduct court business, but we do not have court meetings or oral arguments typically unless there's an emergency. But they just don't respect any of these court customs and procedures, and they've just wholesale abandoned them. Um, I did not expect that they would just throw everything out the window and not really meaningfully seek the input of their colleagues. Yeah, could you give us an idea of, you know, how, how things kind of run behind the scenes? Because, I mean, over the past week, a couple of weeks, we've, we've heard a lot about these, you know, customs, procedures, uh, you know, just internal administration of the court. And, um, you know, that's a completely new concept for, for a lot of us. So could you just give us some idea of how, like, things typically are used to run with, uh, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so typically... Uh, September through June is when the court conducts its business in person. We have oral arguments. We have rules hearings on the Supreme Court rules that govern judges, that govern practice and procedure of, of lawyers and litigants in the entire court system. Um, and as I mentioned, the court does not meet in July and August. And this is, this is a typical uh, custom of many courts around the country. Um, but what we are is what we're supposed to be is a collegial court and what that means is that all seven of us discuss and deliberate over not only cases but these rules that i'm talking about and the administration of the court system and i found it just the height of hypocrisy that the press release issued by rebecca dallet invokes inclusion and transparency and they did all of this, you know, and I, I kind of announced it or described it on Twitter uh, because I think it's important for the public to know what's going on as a secret meeting. 
I knew the meeting was going to take place, but the secret part is that they kept it from all of you, from the public. Even though their new proposed rules and procedures call for public hearings, notice to the media, notice to the public, to the bench and bar, so that input can be received not only from each of the justices, but from the public as a whole, from anybody who has an interest in how the court conducts itself. So they're not even following their own new yeah. proposed procedures, even though I and Brian Hagedorn and Annette Ziegler all said, okay, you want everything done out in the open, then we should have a public notice and a hearing about these sweeping changes. And they're just ignoring us. They just won't do it. So, you know, our court business is, is kind of complicated. It's not comparable to a lot of what people are probably familiar with in the private sector. But what I want to emphasize is that our court operations and procedures are have been longstanding. Do we tweak them? Sure. But typically, we deliberate on cases in closed conference. Those are confidential proceedings. And then throughout our court's history, we've had these public hearings on, on changes to the rules that govern practice procedure, how the court operates. Sometimes we've had open court hearings about changes to internal operating procedures. While I've been on the court, we haven't done that. But to just give you one example of how things have changed so drastically, after I was on the court for a few years and had worked under our existing rules and procedures, our internal operating procedures, I let the court know that I was going to work on some proposed changes. I solicited feedback from every member of the court. I asked anyone who was interested on in working on it with me to, to help me craft some changes to the rules. I presented a redlined document of my proposed changes after getting input from everyone who wanted to give me input. And then we conducted, and this is behind closed doors in what we call our closed conferences, we conducted discussions among ourselves debating whether we should adopt these changes. And then based conversations and feedback from everybody and things, you know, as I was drafting, well, I didn't think about that or no, I didn't intend it to, to be implemented this way. Then we had another round of changes and everybody voted on them. This took place after, you know, several conferences, like I mentioned. I was very startled by the fact that Janet Protasewicz, who hadn't even spent one day with these procedures, just votes with the three justices she's aligned herself with after hearing nothing from the other three of us and having, again, no experience working as a justice under our procedures. So those conferences that you were talking about, were, were all the judges included in those? Absolutely, of course. And that was something else that I really wanted to, to share with the public because I, I don't think people are very familiar with it. You know, I, I, I've read um, some, some responses to our criticisms of what the court is doing. Well, they properly noticed this meeting. That's not how the court has ever functioned. And this is really important because the Constitution gives the Chief Justice administrative authority over the court system. It is the Chief Justice who sets the calendar for the court. Now, she doesn't do that unilaterally. We all have the opportunity to say, 
you know what, I'm not available for court business on such and such day. And she accommodates every instance of a justice saying, I'm not available for court business on such and such a day. So she creates a calendar based on those requests and there has to be unanimous approval of the court calendar. And if there's going to be any changes, a day added, every justice, again, this is going back as far as I know of the court's customs, traditions, and practices, all seven justices have to agree to a date being added. So the four of them said, we want to meet on August 4th. I, I asked them why. I said, we typically don't meet in August. And they said, well, we want to discuss some changes to how things are, are going to work at the court going forward. Okay, fair enough. But typically we would take these up as early as September, but not before. So when they picked August 4th, I said, I'm not available. And again, every single time that a justice indicated she or he were unavailable for a given date, that was respected by the other members of the court. And they would not respect the fact that I was not available on August 4th and they met anyway. And Brian Hagedorn and Annette Ziegler would not do that because the four of them were violating our customs and our traditions and the authority of the chief justice to set the calendar with the approval of all seven justices. So what changes have they, uh, have they telegraphed so far that they, they plan on doing to your procedures? Well, you know, and, and I mean, obviously we all, we, um, you know, it's, it's already public about the, uh, the conference, you know, or the, um, the administrative committee that they're proposing, but could you walk us through that and anything else you, you care to mention? The most significant change bill and the most damaging to the institution of this court is that they are trying to replace the words chief justice in the constitution with administrative committee. And guess what? The administrative committee is comprised of three people, the chief justice, and now it's Rebecca Dallet and Jill Karofsky. So Rebecca Dallet and Jill Karofsky have essentially become the chief justice if these rules are allowed to stand. These rules cannot be adopted by the court in violation of the Constitution. It's the people's will because it is the people who ratify and adopt our constitutional provisions the people gave the administrative authority to the chief justice. Now, that is subject to procedures established by the Supreme Court, which means a majority can adopt procedures that govern how the chief justice administers the court. But they've taken a significant step beyond that because basically all of the powers, all of the authority of the chief justice has now been handed over to a committee. Constitution does not allow that. Replacing the chief justice with a committee is not a procedure, it's a usurpation of her constitutional authority. So uh, we know about, um, you know, the chief justice sets the, um, the court dates. Uh, what are some of the other things that, that uh, she's able to do currently? Before, the yeah, yeah. The, the chief justice um, also is supposed to be the person who directs our state court's director. Um, again, I've, I've served as a justice under uh, Pat Rogensack as chief justice and now Annette Sigler as chief justice. Both of them in their capacities as the chief always consulted with the court and got input from the court 
on just about everything. And the state court director is supposed to work for the court. But now the state court director reports to this committee. Um, I, I am not going to follow these proposed rules because they were adopted in violation of our rules and procedures, and I cannot follow them because I would be violating the Constitution if I legitimize them by following them. So as far as I'm concerned, the Chief Justice still has the administrative authority, and I will follow her administrative uh, decisions, but not the decisions of this committee, because it is unconstitutional. There are other uh, powers of the Chief Justice to appoint individuals to um, various committees. Um, so I am, for example, the Chief Justice's uh, designated chair of the uh, chairman of the legislative committee of the Supreme Court. Uh, the committee, this administrative committee that they've unlawfully created, is now trying to take over uh, these committee assignments. Um, so basically, the entire court system, instead of being under the administrative authority of the Chief Justice, under their new proposed rules, everything would be under the authority of this administrative committee. So, you know, just kind of following these stories over the past couple of weeks, it, it seems like the impression that, that, you know, the impression that one gets is um, if this is how they handle the small things that nobody really knows about and nobody's ever really cared about, you know, what, what's going to happen when the big stuff starts coming up? Well, I think the people should be very worried about having a Supreme Court, the majority of which does not respect the limits of their powers and authority under the Constitution, that they think that they can rewrite the Constitution under these internal operating procedures, which, you know, what I don't think has been mentioned publicly, there's an introduction to these internal operating procedures that says it should be re-emphasized that these are not rules. They do not purport to limit or describe in binding fashion the powers or duties of any Supreme Court personnel. So these are just supposed to be informative for the bench and bar as to how the Supreme Court conducts its business, but they do not bind uh, any of us as justices, and they certainly can't override the Constitution. But that that is the biggest fear I think people should have, that we have a majority of justices who don't respect the Constitution. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's obviously starting to, to become clear, too. It's you, you also get the impression that there's this idea where the Supreme Court gets to decide what the Constitution says, and whoever's got the majority of the Supreme Court is the Constitution. So... What I mean, what recourse does any does the system have to this? What kind of checks and balances? How do you, how do you how do you rein something back in when you've got you know a, a group that has essentially decided that you know they are the Constitution? I've been asked that a lot, and some people are under the impression that the United States Supreme Court kind of oversees what the Wisconsin Supreme Court does, and that's just not true. The United States Supreme Court can only override any decisions that are made by any state Supreme Court if they involve federal law, if there's a federal law claim. But as far as the Wisconsin Constitution and its meaning, um, the Wisconsin Supreme Court has the final say. It's, it's an interesting um, puzzle uh, as to what happens if somebody should file a lawsuit over what the court has done 
because how can the justices who might have claims brought against their actions or against them in their official capacities, they can't sit on the case to decide it. So I, I'm not sure what has happened. This is this is triggering a bit of a constitutional crisis. Uh, we have a court of appeals and maybe that ends up having the final say as to the meaning of the constitution, but that's the function of of the Wisconsin Supreme Court. So their actions, again, are, are creating all kinds of, of problems for, for justice, for the Constitution in the state. Now, what kind of, re- I mean, this is, I mean, this, it, we might not realize it in Wisconsin, but I mean, this is, this is a national story, what, what's going on with, with the court already. What, what kind of reactions are you hearing from your colleagues outside of the state? Outside of the state, uh, people are expressing uh, dismay and outrage over how they are really degrading the institution of the judiciary. They're they're acting like politicians, and something that some of the public is responding with is, well, you know, they won the election, so they have the majority, so this is, you know, how it is, the majority rules. But that's not how collegial courts conduct business. In this country, I know some of my colleagues around the country have gone through uh, similar circumstances, and the hope is that, as has happened in other states, that the people see how these justices conduct themselves. They reject it, and they voice their rejection of it in subsequent elections. So that's our—that's the ultimate recourse that the people have if they don't like what the court is doing. Um, it's we have an elected judiciary, so the justices are accountable to the people in that regard. So, in in the meantime, I mean, how do you how do you uh, see this thing playing out over over the coming months? Like, what are you kind of your expectations and, and fears? Well, I, I'll start with a hope. How's that? Okay. I I, I hope that responsible members of the bench and bar will speak out publicly about what this new majority is doing and how wrong it is. This happened back in the late 1990s, actually, when I had just started practicing law, where some justices did not like uh, the leadership of of then Chief Justice Shirley Abrahamson. And so they tried to create a committee of this sort. And Amal Bradley was one of the most vocal opponents of it, but now I'm sure that's probably where the four got the idea from, uh, because it was tried in the '90s and it was it was denounced. So I'm I'm hoping that there is a similar uh, response. I hope I'm not hoping against hope there. I hope that there is a growing public outcry against the way they are conducting themselves. But this is sort of a my my fear is that this is just an extension of the politicization of the judiciary, which we saw in Janet Protasiewicz's campaign and in the two campaigns of this new majority prior to that where the ends are kind of uh they they believe are justifying any means to to reach those ends and this this is very dangerous for the judiciary which is supposed to be an impartial arbiter of the law but instead we see these new procedures um which we've talked a little bit about I, I think it's pretty transparent that they are designed to accelerate cases that they want to hear, um, like the redistricting litigation, for example. Yeah, this is 
you know, from my perspective too, this is really interesting because typically when one side takes over like this, you, you get a very calm, reasonable demeanor because they know they're going to get everything they want. So let's all be calm and reasonable and let's just, you know, don't rock the boat. Just let's keep moving, you know, in, in, you know, in a calm, professional direction towards everything that we want to get. So the idea that they're, they're kind of like tearing apart that, that, that facade, right, you know, even before, even the, the day before they got the power, it, it seems to be a very um, troubling indication of how things are going to run. Um, so you, I'm also Bill. I'm also worried about our court employees. We have a lot of really terrific, longstanding public servants, dedicated employees, and the first action of this new majority is to fire the head of of the state court system or state courts director. So we have a lot of employees who are pretty terrified of losing their jobs if they do not do the bidding of the four. And that is never how the court has or should conduct business. Our employees are are working in a nonpartisan judiciary to serve the public and to serve the justice system. And they're being put in a terrible position because of this conflict that the four have created by asserting authority they don't have that is in direct conflict with the chief justice. Well, that, that is, you know, that's something I think you know, a lot of everyone in the, the, the workforce can, can kind of can kind of grasp to the significance of because, you know, that you, you know, you come to work and your supervisor's in a bad mood. He can't just fire you on the spot. You know, there's certain there's a way you have to do those sorts of things. So to see this playing out, you know, on the Supreme Court, where essentially they don't even have the power. They just say, hey, you're fired. <laughs> you, you just pack up. <laughs> It's a, really a terrible way to treat employees, and I, I fear that we're going to lose a lot of good people who do not want to work under this extraordinary stress, and it's so unnecessary. Mm-hmm. This, this, to my knowledge, you know, certainly didn't happen when uh, Pat Rogensack took over as chief justice, nor did it happen when Annette Ziegler uh, took over as chief justice. P- pe- people were not fired, right? <laughs> Things kind of continue on um, in the same way, the court system continues operating without these these abrupt and unnecessary and very harmful changes. Now, um, in terms of all these cases that they want to just you know pull up directly, how fast do you do you, do you think these are going to come up? I mean, we've already seen the redistricting one. You know, you start reading, you go through the news reports. There's there's at least a half dozen that you know are being anticipated could come up. How fast do you expect to see those? I think that, um, well, first of all, they don't share with me what their priorities are. Um, typically, cases are filed, and when cases are filed, we have a, a timeline for considering petitions for review, which is the document that initiates a, a request that the court hear a case, and we consider them in the ordinary course, unless there is a true emergency that something needs to be heard under some strict deadlines that are imposed by federal law, such as the case with redistricting when actually redistricting is heard um, after the census requires um, redistricting to occur in the political branches. So sometimes there are cases that have deadlines that, that compel us to have a case be heard earlier than all of our other cases. 
Um, but I, they're being so aggressive that I think whatever cases the four uh, decide to prioritize to advance certain causes. Again, we heard Jana Protasewicz throughout her campaign talk about her values. And um, so I think everybody can, can go back and look at her statements and know that those cases are probably going to be heard in this term um, coming up. And if they're going to take over the scheduling, which again, they have no constitutional authority to do so, we're going to have a conflict with what the chief justice puts on the docket, because I know, I know how she schedules. I know how uh, then chief justice Pat Rogensack scheduled cases. It was okay. This one's next up based on the timing of its filing. And when the court decided to hear the case, but I'm, I'm concerned about, or other cases um, being delayed and being put at the back of the line so they can push their favorite cases and causes to the front of the line, which is grossly unfair, not only to the lawyers and the litigants in those cases, but to the entire bench and bar and the people of Wisconsin who would like to know what the law is and says on the more run-of-the-mill issues like insurance law and criminal law matters. These are really important to people across the state, and they're going to take a back seat to these political cases, unfortunately. And, and that would be the, the chief motivation in them trying to take over the chief justice's uh, responsibilities because they want that scheduling authority. It seems to be the case, and some of the the deadlines that they're accelerating while well, they're trying to say, well, we're trying to, you know, make the court work uh, more efficiently and speedily. Well, there's no need for that. We don't have any post uh, COVID backlog anymore. We've, we've cleared any backlog that we had um, as of last term. So there is, there is no need, need for this. Um, and the shortened deadlines really relate to dissents to the orders that, they want to rush out and they're really again injuring the justice system because these shortened deadlines are designed to not allow those in dissent to have sufficient adequate time to write and to explain to the public why somebody is dissenting from a particular court order to explain the law the rules the procedure whatever the case may be well, um, Your Honor, um, just to wrap up here, was there anything else that I didn't ask you about that you really wanted uh, to get out there? Well, one thing I want to say is that, you know, and, and I know Randy Koshnick has been doing a number of interviews, as has Chief Justice and that Ziegler. This is not about them as individuals. This is about the institution of the judiciary, how it conducts its business to serve the public. Because on a personal level, it it, that is not what the issue is. The issue is whether we're going to have a Supreme Court in the state that follows the rule of law, whether that's our statutes, our constitution, or the laws, the, the rules that we as a court adopt to govern the justice system. And their willingness to just throw it all out to advance their causes is, is so damaging to the institution of the judiciary. It just continues their politicization of the judiciary to kind of make it a super legislator instead of the neutral impartial arbiters of the law that we are supposed to be. So again, I hope that the 
the public will resist it, not for the sake of Randy Koshnick as an individual or Annette Ziegler as an individual or, or Chief Justice for that matter. Um, what they're doing is really harming our court system and ultimately that harms the people. And, and this is the Supreme Court, and this whole issue is definitely in the spotlight right now, and it's probably going to be in the spotlight for quite a while now. So we really appreciate you coming on the uh, the program to uh, to share to share your thoughts with us and to help us understand the issue a little bit better. Well, I appreciate the opportunity, and I'm I'm going to continue to shed a light on what they're doing uh, because I think again they're trying to hide behind closed doors what they're doing because. I think they know deep down that what they're doing is wrong. So I appreciate the opportunity to shed some light on it for your listeners. Sounds great. Well, thank you very much. Again, that was Justice Rebecca Bradley, and I'm Bill Osmolsky from the McIver Institute. Thank you very much for listening to this edition of the McIver Newsmakers Podcast. Mm-hmm.